Boris Johnson and uh, David Cameron have a great deal in common. Both went to Eton, uh, both became Prime Minister, both are social liberals, and both of them face or faced constitutional challenges. Cameron lost Europe, Boris Johnson may well lose Scotland and Northern Ireland. And at the centre of this the shared link between them is that they both will be defined by Brexit. Both also wanted to be green. Remember all those huskies that were taking David Cameron to the Arctic and the great green ambitions back in 2010 when the coalition government was filled. Then there's Boris and Boris Johnson's great greening, the desire to not only embrace net zero and climate change and make that central to his uh, period of office, but also the wider green agenda, the desire to increase the amount of protected areas in Britain and drive through a number of serious environmental reforms. To both started well, and uh, it's already quite a good moment to ask, well, post the end of the Brexit transition, how's it going? How well is uh, the Boris Johnson government doing on the green front? And although it's only a month since the uh, transition ended, we can already see some straws in the wind. And they're not all encouraging. And there's a central reason why, which I'll come to in a moment. If you think what's happened so far, we committed, or at least Michael Gove made it clear that we're committed to having standards at least as good as those in Europe, but uh, if anything, better. So we've already had some choices. What do we do about carbon pricing? Now we're no longer a member of the EU emissions trading scheme, the EU ETS. Do we do a carbon tax? By far the best option. Do we just shadow what's going on in the EU ETS? Not a bad option. Or three, do we try and invent our own UK ETS? You guessed it. We picked the UK ETS, the worst of the three options, making it much harder to extend carbon pricing through to agriculture, heating uh, and transport, the main challenges in the net zero space. And why? Well, the problem with the carbon tax is it confronts people with the bill. It makes polluters explicitly pay and there's not much political advantage in making it clear that decarbonisation is a potentially costless affair. But there are lots of other little things that have been happening. So at the first hurdle, uh, DEFRA relaxes, at least temporarily, the prohibition on using neonics as a pesticide for controlling aphids and, in the case of sugar beet, uh, therefore the virus that the aphids spread to the beet. Well, that's not a good start, really. But it's much worse than that. So we're allowing farmers to use this to grow sugar beet. And we're so worried about the damage to pollinators that DEFRA is very careful to prevent any flowering plants occurring anywhere near the fields that have been treated for a year or two to come, including actually oilseed rape. And no doubt that will require glyphosate to kill everything off to make sure those pesky flowers don't come up and help the biodiversity. 
Then there's the issue of waste. The EU has moved to ban the export of waste. Not us. We're not going to do that. And uh, so these little straws in the wind start to trickle out. The weakening of the definition of public goods in public goods for public money. Uh, the softening of the agricultural reforms. They trot along and then there is, whatever its merits, the shift on gene editing and gene technology. Probably inevitable, but not what the Europeans are doing. And there may be more of this to come. Now, why are these things happening? Surely the Prime Minister, like David Cameron was uh, back in 2010, is committed to greening our environment, tackling climate change, enhancing natural capital and biodiversity, making the 25-year plan stick. Now, I've no reason to doubt his sincerity, just as I had no reason to doubt David Cameron's sincerity. But both also uh, come up against a critical problem. The thing is, some of these things might cost something, and we can't have that. In particular, we can't have customer bills going up. So in David Cameron's time, the pressure to limit, control, prevent rises in electricity bills was a key part of the political currency between David Miliband and David Cameron. And the famous words, cut the green crap, were widely reported. Well, fast forward to now. Why is it that it's proving so difficult to push forward on the Prime Minister's green agenda? Well, because he doesn't want customers to pay. The Energy White Paper, in particular, spells out that customers shouldn't expect to have rising energy bills. Really? So all of this lot, this massive transformation of our economy from a high carbon to net zero is going to happen at low cost. Well, no, there's lots of expenditure to come, a huge amount of investment. So who's going to pay? Ah, well, we can't have taxpayers paying very much. And indeed, there isn't much public expenditure in the 10-point plan and the energy white paper. It's all going to have to be borrowed because we can't have customers, we can't have taxpayers paying. So who should we make pay to clean up the mess we've created? Why, of course, the next generation. Let's borrow lots and then make them pay it back later. And that problem of the politics of paying the price of dealing with the pollution legacies that we have created and uh, avoiding paying those and making the next generation inherit both the pollution and the bill is what motivates a lot of practical day-to-day -day politics. And my fear is that this is just the beginning. The failure to face up to, in particular, the costs of net zero lead to a whole host of potential compromises uh, down the track. Will the Office for Environmental Protection really be able to hold the government to account? Well, already uh, the government's made sure that it really shouldn't use its powers very often. And anyway, it'll have to be given guidance by the Secretary of State. That's not what Michael Gove promised. And uh, it's yet to be seen whether amendments to the bill reinstate that independence. And then what happens 
on the decarbonisation front, when the rock and the hard place come together, the costs and the bills, which will give? Will it be more important to hang on to votes in the red wall seats in the north, the blue wall seats as they now are, and just prevent the bills going up, even if that means sacrificing the investments necessary for net zero? Or will the Prime Minister do the blood, sweat and tears Churchillian turn, the one he's very keen on, which is to tell people the truth that we have to face up to our environmental responsibilities, we have to pay the costs, and in leaving the EU, we can only keep pace and improve upon the EU's position if we're to do that. And that brings us back to another similarity between David Cameron and Boris Johnson and their relative predicaments. You know, if Scotland becomes independent, it'll rejoin the EU. So we'll really have a live experiment within the island of what is now Britain. Scotland will be pursuing the EU policies and it's staying as close as possible as it can at the moment. And England and Wales will go their separate ways. Which one will actually prove to be greener? The EU-driven Scotland or the sovereign England and Wales pursuing its own strategy? The jury will, in the end, decide well into the future if Scotland goes independent. But the straws in the wind in the last month are not quite as encouraging as they ought to be. And that's a mistake because it means that there'll be less economic efficiency, less sustainable economic growth, less public benefit if we roll back on the opportunities which both David Cameron and Boris Johnson saw at the start of their terms of office. Let's hope the Prime Minister sticks to his commitments. Thank you.